Hey everybody, and welcome back to the Post-Military Podcast, where we share stories of veterans' transition out of the military and their advice to other service members based on their life experience. Whether you are still in service, a veteran, or just someone preparing to transition into a new chapter of your life, there is something here for you to learn. I've included timestamps in the description of the episode, so head down there to see if there are any topics that are of particular interest to you. Also, while you're poking around, subscribing to the channel or podcast on your favorite platform is always greatly appreciated. Anyway, thank you so much for being here today, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Solemnly swear. Do solemnly swear. That I will support and defend. That I will support and defend. The Constitution of the United States. The Constitution of the United States. Let's get started. Let's do it. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Post-Military Podcast, the podcast where we give you Stories and advice on transitioning from one chapter of your life to the, to another, uh, specifically focusing on the stories of military veterans. With me today uh, is someone who, if you've been on LinkedIn, you've seen him in a lot of the veteran and transitioning military uh, circles. Great commentator, always has something interesting to say online. Before he got heavily into LinkedIn, he was in the Air Force, the greatest branch of the U.S. military. Everyone else who disagrees are haters and lived in squalor while we got to live in wonderful air-conditioned houses. He worked as an aviation electronics. I don't even know. What's that, what the, what's that AFSC? What's the... It was uh, Aircraft Electrical and Environmental, 2A6X6. Okay. He did that? Got out as an E5 and has worked in operations management for his entire career, currently working with Optum, and was kind enough to come on today to give everyone his story and his advice. Joel, what's up, man? How are you? What's going on? It is great to be here. I really appreciate the opportunity. I'm super excited to have you on the show. Like I said, found you on LinkedIn. You're always in the comment threads, always got something awesome to say, and I'm like this guy would probably be pretty cool to talk to for somewhere between an hour and, and two hours. So here we are. And that's are. probably yeah. about as far as it goes, right? After two hours, like, all right, yeah, maybe, maybe no, we find yeah, somebody you've, else. Yeah, you said, you said, you said your piece. Like, at the end of the day, like, how interesting are any of us veterans, really, when you think about <laughs> it beyond two hours? So that's... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I know I'm not that interesting. I'm not that interesting. I've got three cool facts about me. And one of them is I make apple pie really well, and I've burned thirty three percent of my interesting facts. So that's it. <laughs> oh man, okay. We're gonna pace. We're gonna pace it out, and I'll see if I can get all three of them through the end of the the podcast. Then. Okay, cool. I lied. I, that's that's my only interesting fact. We're done. <laughs> <laughs> so, Joel, let's start at the beginning. Tell everyone a little bit about your military career and what eventually got you to the point where you decided that it was time to leave the service. Yeah, so I joined the Air Force right out of high school. Actually, you and I were chatting about this right before we went on and found out we were neighbors or nearby neighbors growing up. We grew up about 40 miles away from each other. So I was in Springfield, Ohio, which if you've ever been there, um, it's a great place to be from. I love my hometown. I love the upbringing that I had. And I had this moment of clarity where I was like, I probably don't want to be here. I was a okay high school wrestler and i had some low grade like d3 opportunities that weren't involving scholarships so did a couple campus tours and had this one moment where i realized that maybe 
I wasn't mature enough to handle college yet. So decided to go see Uncle Sam and see if they could give me some guardrails to help me become a fully functioning adult. The jury's still out on if I made that or not, but that was the, the way I went. And every hometown, I think, has like that suite of all four recruiters. So I went and in talked to every... Yeah, somewhere. in a strip mall, I went next to a dentist office and a bank, and I went and talked to every recruiter. And it, I went through and kind of weighed all the options and ended up going with the Air Force. Although I will say the, the Marine Corps recruiters, there is nobody in the world better at what they do than the people that recruit for the Marine Corps. They have you ready to go fight forgotten country that minute. <laughs> but And their you know, uniforms look sick. Like they always yeah. look squared away and you're like, Man, they look so cool. It, it almost <laughs> compensates for that lack of air conditioning you talked about at the beginning, but not quite. <laughs> so it ended up just really didn't, still was at that point where I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life and was like, okay, let me see if the Air Force can give me something. So I was looking for some sort of a job with a skill that could maybe give me a path forward, a little bit of flexibility. Uh, went to the Air Force and it was that game of like, here are the jobs that are available and when you might be able to ship off. So I found something that got me out the door pretty quickly. And long story short, did eight years as an aircraft electrician. I was stationed at Davis Monthan Air Force Base here in Arizona in Tucson. That was my first assignment. That's when I learned about dream sheets, right? You fill out, you list out wherever you want to live. And I had Florida and North Carolina and everywhere near the water. And they were like, how about the middle of the desert? But ended up, Arizona ended up being a great assignment. Deployed from there in, uh, to Iraq. So that was my first deployment. And I was actually doing TCN duty, which is like on base security forces. I was part of a Air Force security forces group. So it was a cool just get to be a part of a different unit, experience something really different. And then got orders to RAF Lakenheath, which is where I spent about half of my career. So did my second enlistment in Lakenheath. And around the time I got out, a couple of different major things had happened, both in my career in the military and in my life. So number one, my wife and I had our first daughter or our first child, or my only daughter, towards the end of my second enlistment. I had been working incredibly hard for about a year to put together a commissioning package. And anybody who's been on that journey, you've got to really, not only I had to finish my degree while I was on active duty, which is tough in and of itself while you're working full-time, had to do all the volunteer work and win the awards and the special projects and get, get the colonel to write a letter of recommendation and that whole game. And then that package that year was the year they were doing a lot of sequestration and the entire enlisted officer program got canceled for that year. And I forget what it exactly was, but I know I had already put the package in and I was like checking the website every day to see the status. And then I got an email from AFPC saying, Hey, this, this, this program is canceled. Like better luck next year. In hindsight, I think I was just so completely burnt out and overwhelmed with life. Like I just had a kid my my wife and I had moved. I was still pretty young from Arizona, had taken her from her whole family and life in the States. And we were trying to figure this whole new life out together. And you get this disruption to the military identity. And I just said, maybe it's time to try something different. And it again, just like joining the military, I, I don't know if I put as much thought about the the permanence of that decision the same way I did when I got out. And I don't know if that's good or bad, but this was like, hey, maybe we'll try something different. So decided to separate from there. That was in 2014. And so we moved from England. My first job 
I guess I'll, I'll stop there. That was my my first job getting out of the military. It was at that moment I decided to leave and shift out and find something new to do. Yeah. First, you really had a banger of a career in terms of location. So congrats. Those are, you really hit yeah. a lot of, you really were batting 100 when you got out. So congrats, you you left a yeah. high point. <laughs> that that was a, a big piece of it too. It was like, I did eight years. I got like all this amazing stuff. We got to go cool places. And I would have had to re-enlist to get over to my return assignment. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay, this is it. Like, we're doing 20 or we got to go. Yeah. Second, I, as someone who... So I went to, I commissioned right out of college. I went to a military academy. I thought my application process was rather rigorous. And then I helped a enlist, I helped a staff sergeant put together his like O package. And oh my God, which never really made sense to me because I'm like, wouldn't, I would want in prior E officer over some dipshit from college any day. So I feel like if I was the military and I was going to like open the floodgates on one commissioning source, that would be the one to do it. But yeah, for whatever reason, it's you need to be like save a person's life, invented a new plane, yeah. also invented a new weapon system, save multiple people and I don't even know, cured cancer. And it's like, we will consider you at that point. If yeah, the general just, writes you a nice recommendation letter. <laughs> and you just, there weren't that many Air Force guys clear in the streets of Fallujah at the time. So like, exactly. you know, your opportunity yeah. to be the, be the hero or low. Yeah, it yeah, was, it, so, it was definitely, you know, kudos. And I've got a couple of friends that were around that same time frame. They had, I think, I don't either they had put in the same application or they were like, I was giving them notes. Here's mm-hmm. how I put mine together. So they were going to follow that plan. And a lot of them are commissioned now and they've been in for years. Mm-hmm. So it's it's cool to see that like, all right, people are still getting through that process, but yeah, it's, it's a ringer. For sure. And I like all the people that I work with who are priory officers, they were all squared away as can be. So the process works, but man, I wish they let more people through anyway. Something I wanted to ask you about before we talk about your exit from the military, I feel like the narrative, maybe the narrative has just changed, but I feel like for so many people, college is just like this default thing that people do. And why do you think you had the ability to go, I'm not ready for this yet? Because I think most people, honest to God, are not ready for college. Like I wasn't. I got lucky and what existed on the end of my four-year degree was the military. Thank goodness, because man, I wasted that education. But why do you think, what do you think you had in that moment that prepped you for that? Because I I wish more people did. Not necessarily like everyone should go in the military, but like work, military, volunteer, something other than go $80,000 in debt because you want to figure your life out. Yeah. I don't know. And and I think I've only made like five good decisions in my entire (laughs) life, but they've been at the exact right moment to really get max ROI. Like I joined the Air Force. I pursued kind of the career path I did and I married my wife. Other than that, I've probably made every other mistake I could. But if you get those big ones, you're doing okay. Uh, Yeah, I think a piece of it was like this was in... There's a couple of different things like I 
my family didn't have a ton of money. So like I, I was going to have to come out of pocket and I just was doing the math and being pragmatic. And I was like, I don't know how I'm going to do this. And then I remember there were, there was a guy who was a senior my freshman year in high school and he ended up joining the Marines. His name was Kevin Smith and he, he was actually killed in Iraq about a year after he graduated. And that really, like, there was a kind of a group of us that were freshmen. And I remember he was one of the, the only seniors that was cool and nice to us. Like one of the cool seniors that didn't bully us and pick on us. And I, I think that had a little bit of an impact where, you know, that and a couple of family members was like, okay, the military feels like something where if you don't know what you want to do, go pick up a metaphorical shovel and let, let uncle Sam give you something to work on. So I think it was a combination of those, but I did. I do agree. I wish there were more ways to, and this is something I share with a lot of like youth. It's like, take a couple years off, do something like don't, you don't have to join the military, but like, go volunteer, go work a, a, a shit job, like figure stuff out, then decide what kind of education you really need. Yeah. 100%. I think that it's the number one thing that I wish that we pushed more for in America in terms of educate. Like it's definitely my, since my wife's pregnant now with our first kid, it's, those are the kinds of things I've been thinking about a lot now. And I'm like, I'm definitely going to be encouraging my children. Like, you do not need to go to school right out of high school. Like, I, I would not recommend it. And here are other options. But especially now where COVID made everyone go, oh, yeah, it's online, but it's still expensive. And it's it's just one of those things where I don't know if it's the same return on investment as people think it as it was back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I will say on that topic, though, the advice I still give to vets mm -hmm. right now, I think the industry and the world might be changing. I don't mm -hmm. think it's changed yet. I still encourage like, if you want a kind of traditional, quote unquote, professional job, still hedge your bets and get, get a degree. Society Agreed. hasn't swung that far away from it. 100 percent. I completely I completely agree with you in, the, in that regard, especially if you're getting out of the military. Use that GI Bill, baby. That's the, that thing's sweet. Yeah, but between the VA loan and the GI Bill, the military, if you're paying attention, will really set you up for a successful future. For sure. I, I had a podcast guest at one point tell me, uh, I forget what their exact words were, but essentially it, it's the it's one of the fastest ways to get to go from to jump into the upper middle class if you yeah. play your cards. So it's I completely agree with you on that. So for you you're you're upset you're burned out you went through all of this to try and get this package in and then the air force sequestered your dreams away what what did that preparation process look for once you knew i i'm down i'm, I'm dropping my papers i'm getting out what did that preparation process look like for you or was there one because you just said you just sent it without any kind of prior thought so what did that inner before we get to your first job what did that like the before time right before you picked up your dd214 look like yeah and i'd say it was it was probably a shorter transition window than like the typical you need to spend two years that everybody kind of talks about but i did once i made the decision i've always been very like goal oriented right? i need something to work for it was like this getting this degree or putting this officer package together or this now it's this job so I'd say I honestly way over indexed on the the tactical career stuff, like the the interview prep, the resume prep, the the job hunting. I think I was like really well prepared there, especially for having worked with a lot of vets now. As an E five getting out with limited experience, I, I stuck the landing on some of those topics. 
where I completely missed the mark was like the self-awareness. Number one, that I was burnt out and just experiencing general life stress. I was still young enough. I didn't realize that was how life worked. Like, oh, you have kids and job responsibilities and things. And like that becomes overwhelming. And sometimes you just need to unpack it and recharge. I, I missed that entire window. So me saying that's where I was, that's like years later, I'm like, oh yeah, okay. So that's yeah, you know, I'm first, I'm only two years out. I totally get what you're saying, but then take me back to that moment. And what was your mindset then? Like you were literally just, like, I'm going to be the greatest interviewer of all time. Like no one ever saw kind of thing. That's where you just single tracked it into. Yeah, I think I just, I wanted, again, in hindsight, like I think I was more nervous than I was aware of and scared. And it is, you're leaving your whole identity. I think especially guys that like us, you either enter into an academy or into the military at 18, 19 years old. That's your identity definition window. And you don't get as much room for exploration as some young adults do. And that's not good or bad. That's part of the trade-off and part of the sacrifice. Like I'm not hating on it, but you don't develop that personality as much or you don't explore as much. So, um, you know, I had to do that and fill that in backwards. And I think with all that discomfort, what you're, what I was doing anyway, was saying, let me just find something to be really good at. Let me check something off the list. So when you think about things like prepping for an interview or writing your resume, it is, it gets tactical enough that you can feel like you're quote unquote good or you're ready. Whereas things like emotional well-being are much more complicated and nuanced and you can't just like, oh, I won. I did it. Yeah. Who am I really on the inside? Isn't yeah, that a fun so, question to ask yourself? So it turns out I just like Heisman that topic for several years and was like, mm -hmm. let me get my resume really good. And I even remember doing an exit interview with my commander and he was like, this is one of the best resumes I've ever seen. And I was like, I didn't say this in my head. I'm like, that's really shitty. That scares me because I'm, I was 25, I think. Like I'm a 25 year old. I've literally seen like one other civilian resume in my life. I didn't have like, my family wasn't a bunch of, like, I didn't have my parents weren't like MBAs and working in that field. So it's like, I had no context and I had managed to figure it out. So I'm like, what's happening to a lot of other vets that this is setting the bar. It's very true. Counterpoint though, is you're like, buddy, you've never been outside of the military either. So yeah. what do you know? Is it like, how do you know it's a good resume? Yeah. He said it was one of the best, like, but again, within vet. So I'm like, yeah. like competition's not great. For sure. For sure. And so you, and all, was all this prep happening in England at the time? Yeah. I was stationed in England and the way the timeline worked, I, my, my first job, I ended up landing a job at SpaceX. That was my first civilian job. That's sick. Yeah, it was awesome. And they were heavily recruiting at the time for for my background, like Air Force, mm -hmm. Marine Corps, Navy, aviation mm -hmm. technicians, because turns out the standards for aircraft, aircraft in the military and spacecraft aren't too far apart. And you can mm -hmm. bring a lot of those skills. But I remember doing an interview from England with Elon Musk. <laughs> no, yeah, not with Elon. No, but then I did like my first one or two interviews with them there and had interviewed with a couple other companies while I was over. And then came, I remember I flew, we came back to America, landed in Ohio and I stayed one night and the next morning I flew on a plane and went out to LA to finish my interviews in person with SpaceX. It was, and I collected my first two or three checks as a civilian while I was still on terminal leave. 
Mm-hmm. I was like really on it. Mm-hmm. What was it like for you starting work on terminal leave? What was that uh, like? In, in hindsight, it was terrible. So I, again, I thought that I was doing the right thing, getting my job, getting pay lined up. Cause that's what you think. You're like, oh, I got to keep a paycheck and I've got to get it all figured out. I don't remember if I just wasn't talking about it or asking my wife enough, or if I just wasn't listening, it's probably that I wasn't listening, but yeah, it, men in their twenties, for sure. Like I was an idiot. I was like, no, we, I need to start working and didn't basically didn't take any time off. So went from like that burnt out overworked moment in the military to SpaceX, which is, it was an amazing opportunity, amazing environment, but a lot of hours I was, yeah, I was working hard. I was working on second shift. So I think shift work aside from all the physiological impacts. Now I'm leaving a, a wife and young baby at home and it's not the military where you're like, I have to do it or it's part of the, the bigger mission. You're like, I'm just, this was my choice. And I think that was a tough moment for us as a family. Like I think where I got probably A's in the career transition, I damn near failed the take care of your family side of the transition and take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. And you said you pushed it off for that discovery of self for a couple of years. So walk me through. So you're in SpaceX, you're in California now. What happens in the life of in the life of Joel that eventually leads to this whatever moment of realization that you had where you're talking to me about this now? Yeah, I'd say honestly, and it's it's really just in the past couple of years that I've gotten a lot better at this. The the short version is like you fast forward and it it seems like I've gone through a couple different civilian employers on my path between SpaceX and where I work now, but it's every employer I would hit this point a year or two in where I was just like stressed out and overwhelmed and overworked and like they don't get it and this is whatever it is, right? You name the story of like all that negative talk of that people can do to themselves. When you do that across a couple of different employers, you start to realize you're like, maybe it's me. Maybe work just has parts about it that aren't fun. Now, and again, don't get me wrong there. I, I think I left every step of my career for pretty good reasons. But as you look at the theme, you're like, oh, I was unhappy here. I was getting too emotionally invested in work here. I was wrapping my identity up in it too much at all these places. You're like, maybe that's something I can look at controlling. And I think, again, this kind of only came clear in hindsight, but when we talk about that identity gap of you didn't get to figure yourself out as a young adult, the military kind of tells you who you are. And it is, it's not a job the same way being a civilian is. It's part of who you are. And I think I was trying to replace that and be like, no, I'm like who I am is where I work. And that's just not the way it is. There are very few jobs And there are, I think, certain medical professionals. And if you're the founder of a company, that's a lot more of who you are than the average employee. But when you're living in corporate America, that shouldn't be your entire identity. No. And I love what you said about the military really does wrap our identity. Everything's wrapped up in it. And I liked what you said when you talked about your shift work of, If you were doing shifts in the military, it's digestible and okay because there's like service to the nation 
inexorably attached to that. And then you take away that military context and all of a sudden it's just like, I'm getting money for this cool. And I don't think that enough people in the military really equate the fact that most people either love or deal with their job in the military because there's some purpose attached to it that's external to the job itself. It's not the job. It's what's yeah. It's the framework the job is placed in. And I don't think people think about that enough. Yeah. And that's, again, I think something really hard is you make that shift to becoming a civilian. And that's some of the big feedback where like a lot of that struggle with where they can be overbearing or they're just too gung ho. Oh, you really are. You don't get these people you're working with have built their entire life and work is this chapter of it. And it can be an important chapter and it can be meaningful. Mm-hmm. And it's a chapter of their book, whereas you're trying to live your whole life in that set of pages. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I completely agree. And so what did that realization process and then the recovery process look like for you? Yeah. So I think it was really like COVID was really challenging from a work standpoint. I was at a different company at this point. So I fast forwarded a couple of years and was leading a distribution center. So I was like the senior, the leader of this DC and COVID hits. And I remember like that March, April period, right? So easy in hindsight for us to laugh about it or whatever. And like the toilet paper shortages and all that. But there was a period where anybody who tells you that they weren't scared is lying because we really didn't know what the hell was going on. And then, so you go through that, like that stress environment, which I think we all work through at our own level. And then I had that whole like work went crazy, right? Like I was an essential employer. We were fully open. We were in person. So you had not only all that stress of like going into work, not going into work, but I was leading a lot of these decisions or working with my leadership team to help decide, like, do we make employees wear masks or not? Are we even allowed to do that? And then you're communicating, like, I'm the voice of all these decisions. That's the job of a leader, but it's definitely stressful. And I think coming out of that, so that kind of winds down and COVID kind of gets to more of its normalized life that we've been through the past couple of years. And as I was, I ended up finding my current job and we can talk about like that journey, but I took two weeks off. I had started to learn, right? I took a couple of weeks off in between jobs. I'd started to hear that feedback and just did some time. At first I was like, let me think about what I want to do to be successful in this new job. That was, again, I still had that mentality. And then I think just through the the process of trying to be better at work, I started coming to the realization that like better people are better employees, better people are better leaders. So it's like, okay, how do I become a better person? And just slowly the exposure of all of the self-help and all the, like those kinds of influencers helped me unwind. Like, okay. I just want to be a better person and not prioritize work being the entire center of it. And strangely enough, like that's when some of my best work performances started to happen.
I'd say the, the first piece of advice is like, you got to figure out what works for you. Cause especially in this day and age, there are so many voices, writers, methods, like, there's so many different options, whether it's going to therapy, getting involved in a religious practice, like meditation, breath work, listening to podcasts. There's so much out there. So really you've got to find what works for you. And I would say like that trial and error is really important. Something that's really resonated with me and been helpful is like stoicism. And I don't know if you've heard of Ryan Holiday and he's got the, our modern stoic writers. Yeah, he yeah, back yeah. there on the shelf. I've got, I've got all three of his books down there on the bottom shelf. So yeah. Yeah. And I think that was another, the people that have embraced that, like the obstacles, the way mindset of like, you no know, hard is what is supposed to happen. Like hard is how life works. You have to try to just choose what's worth grinding through the hard for. And I think that's kind of. That was a big piece of it for me. And then the more you can invest in, again, self-awareness, whether that's journaling, therapy, meditation, the more you can become self-aware and focus on your metacognitions. What thought patterns are you applying to problems, right? Like that one I unlocked was, oh, I feel uncomfortable about something over here. I'm going to pour myself into work and ignore that other problem. Like it took me a long time to learn to identify that, but questioning your own thought patterns is, can become really helpful. Yeah. I think that building the self-awareness is huge because in my opinion, I think the number one reason why it would be helpful for a lot of veterans is you understand if you can understand why you feel the way that you feel or what's triggering you, it allows you to understand these issues outside of yourself. Once yeah. you realize oh, this external, for this thing over here is forcing me to become a workaholic. You're not a workaholic then. There's just, there's just factors that can influence yeah. you to become a workaholic. But if you don't have that self-awareness, then you go, I guess I'm just obsessed with work for the rest of my life. Or I guess I'm just sad now. Or I guess I'm just depressed now. And it's like, that's really terrible. That's bad. That's not like, if you're looking down the... <laughs> If you're looking down the barrel of like depression for the rest of your life or being sad for the rest of your life or hating your job for the rest of your life, that, that takes you to dark places real fast. Cause I don't want to, I don't want to live like that. And, but self-awareness allows you to realize that these are things that are triggered by things. And you, if you remove the trigger, then that thing goes away. And I think that would, that's just something that's so powerful for people to grab onto if they can. Yeah. And, and I'll share, and this is probably controversial advice in our community, but I quit drinking about two years after I left the military full time. Um, and I think that was honestly one of the, I said, I've made a couple of good decisions. That was definitely one of them. And I, for me, I know there are people that do different levels of how do you quit and only drink beer or whatever. For me, it was just easier to, to abstain completely. So I haven't drank since I'm and that was a huge decision. And I, I remember early on, it wasn't a vet, but another guy was like, how do you function if you don't drink? I'm like, in hindsight, that's a problem. But uh, like, bro, you shouldn't be asking that question. But the answer I gave was one of those first like self-aware moments where I was like, look, when you're not drinking, you have to look at yourself clean, clearly in the mirror every day. So like whatever stuff starts to show up that you're like, oh, like I feel uncomfortable about there's something in the corner over there. Maybe I haven't learned how to identify it, but now I can't, I've got one less layer I can use to block it out. Like I'm not drinking. So it's, oh, that's creeping into view a little bit more. Eventually I'm going to decide to go clean that mess up in the corner. I think that once 
things like drugs or alcohol become a crutch to mask the work that needs to be done for yourself, then it's a problem. Well, but that can be literally anything. You could just, I really dig McDonald's or I really like work or I really like video games or like all of those things are good in moderation. But the second that they are used as a means by which you hide from something that needs to be dealt with, then it's a problem and you should probably just not do it. And I think it's hard for a lot of people. And I think drinking is just the, that's just like the standard ops for military folks because we we come from a drinking culture and yeah. it is what it is. You do a couple years in England and that's oh, that, sure. you're like oh we're <laughs> that's where we're at right now. Yeah, you're like ah oh, the food doesn't taste good, so I might as well try the beer. <laughs> <laughs> the food the the joke is the food tastes really good. They just stole it from a whole bunch of different countries that they had visited the over the years. Is baller. The Indian food in England, I didn't realize that. Like in America, every little town has like a decent pizza shop and usually like a decent Chinese restaurant. Every mm-hmm. tiny village in England has Indian a takeout Indian and it is amazing. Oh, for sure. Like I you miss that. Get, I miss that so much about England. You just get that naan in the curry and you're just mm-hmm. like, oh, yeah. Oh. Um, yeah. That's my only that's I was like. We, when I was, when I stopped over in London on my way to Amsterdam for a river cruise I did with my in-laws very recently, we ate at a British pub and we ate at an Indian restaurant in London in the stopover. And I'll tell you what, that British pub was real bad and that Indian food was real good. (laughs) Absolutely, man. Oh, man. So talk me through getting your job currently. What you had mentioned that was like, that was like an event. So talk me through that to where yeah. you are right now. And this is one of those ones where like you you've said at the beginning of the podcast, like I'm big on LinkedIn and I'm pretty active. That's only been about a year old. Like I've just started really investing energy into LinkedIn. Prior to that, because when you first get out, even in 2014, you go to TAPS and they're like, get on LinkedIn. Like that's the whole re- advice. It's like, get on LinkedIn. And you, I'm like, okay, I created a profile and like, you get told to connect with people. So I'm like, okay, I think... This story is how I think LinkedIn should work or can work in a really good way and how vets don't anticipate this is how it's supposed to work. So one of my employers post-military was Target. So I'm working there. This was probably 2016, I think. And I was like our building's compliance captain, right? The fire extinguishers and emergency exits and make sure that all that was one of my programs like we had in the Air Force. And a guy came to visit to do an, an audit of the building. And so my job was like, I was following him around and, hey, show me this safety binder and show me this and show me that doing the audit with him. And all I remember is like people in the military, oh, connect with people on LinkedIn. So I added this guy on LinkedIn, never followed up, never, hey, great to connect. Didn't stay in touch with the guy at all. Just added him as a connection. Fast forward like five years, he's now working at Optum where I work and posts a job and is like, I forget exactly what it was, but it was like. I, I couldn't have written a better job description for myself. So I, I reached out. I was like, hey, I don't know if you remember me, but I think I'm the guy for this job. I gave him a quick pitch on where my skills were. Let I, I already applied. That's I applied, then told him I was. I reached out. Then you went through the process, did the interviews, and the rest is history. A couple other weird things there, though, and it's like all the lessons about military transition came in this one story. The leader two levels up from the hiring manager, a level up from the hiring manager, the final interview I had to do used to work with my old boss's boss at Target. 
and they knew each other and were like really good friends. So it, it's reinforced that like don't burn bridges because a hundred percent, if I would have screwed around or been a bad employee or left on bad terms with that guy, I would have completely torpedoed what ended up being like a dream job for me. Oh, that's awesome. And so you talk about what LinkedIn should be for veterans. What is your like quick advice to people on what LinkedIn, give me a, paint a better picture for people out there of what you think LinkedIn should be for veterans yeah. and what it shouldn't be for veterans. I think it's one really important thing to understand is you don't have to be a genius on this, but understand how algorithms work and how like social media feeds are tailored nowadays. If you're a military veteran who's mostly connected with military veterans and, and recruiters of military veterans and military influencers, your feed is going to be all military posts. It's going to look completely different from what I'll call civilian LinkedIn. There's only one LinkedIn, but you're going to get this exposure and see LinkedIn in a way that civilians don't see. And I know this now because I didn't connect with a ton of military folks when I got out. I wasn't in the military LinkedIn space. So my feed today looks entirely different than it did when I was like using LinkedIn to find a job. So I think what I, the advice I try to give to transitioning vets is like they look at even stuff that like I post or that other people on LinkedIn are posting. I've been out of the military for 10 years. So I'm posting advice from a real position of like experience. But then I've, I see veterans posting veteran transition advice and they're, you look at their profile and they're in the process of getting out. And it's like, you got to be careful. That's not what you're supposed to be doing. You're not supposed to be a content creator in, in my opinion, anyway, in your first couple of months getting out of the military, your job is to be connecting and finding actual people to have actual conversations with. And I see people use that to varying levels of experience and you don't have to like the guy that ended up bringing me into Optum and this amazing job that I have now didn't hire me because I made really cool thought provoking posts on LinkedIn. Like he hired me because I had a very particular set of skills that aligned really well with what he needed. Yeah. Just like Liam Neeson. I was going to say, I realized that sounded a little <laughs> Liam Neeson. <laughs> no, I think that I, I completely agree. I think that what you just referenced, and I think that I am at least partially guilty of what I'm about to say, is you, in the military, we just want to know what to do next. We don't operate well with the world's your oyster and you have 360 degrees to maneuver in and it's all your choice and there really are no guardrails. Good fucking luck. So you get on LinkedIn and you just see what the trends are. And I think for me, when I got on LinkedIn, as the pandemic was pulling down, like my two big takeaways were, okay, if I get a good job that pays well, because every because I was in cyber, everyone's like, get that bag thrown at you when you get out <laughs> and get my VA stuff squared away. I'll be good. And then you stay. I stay on LinkedIn a little bit longer, and I'm like, oh, all these people are talking about transition stuff. I know what it what the deal is because I'm I am doing it, and so that's what people do. So that's what I'm going to do. And I think that a lot of people who post see the. I think it's a function of wanting to matter and a function of you don't know what else to do. You, that's the one thing you can do in this world where nothing makes sense, I think might be a way to think. I'm not saying people should do it. I just think that might be a reason why people do it. 
No, and I totally agree with that. Like most veterans don't deal well, especially like over time, if you did have a lot of that entrepreneurial spirit and let me get creative, like that eventually could beaten out of you. And you're like, no, you fall between the lines. So then when you're getting out, you're like, hey, where are the lines at? And they're like, oh, there are no lines. So yeah, that can be really uncomfortable. Another thing for people to realize too, most of what on like the daily posters on LinkedIn, like everybody wants something from you. A lot of these folks, like it's their business, it's their brand. And I'm not knocking by any means. Like a lot of these VSOs are doing amazing work and incredible work, but it's their full-time job, right? They are on LinkedIn because they're trying to place veterans in jobs, right? Again, good work, but that's what they're getting paid when you get hired. Like I don't get paid to post stuff on LinkedIn. I get no financial benefit from it. So if it comes down to making a LinkedIn post or accomplishing the important work at my real job that pays the bills or playing soccer in the backyard with my kids, like LinkedIn's going to fall off the table. But. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. And I just, people don't have that context when they decide to do that stuff or whatever. And it's, it is funny though, cause I also think that then the trap that a lot of people fall into is then they go, and this isn't just a LinkedIn thing. This is a job thing. And I'm curious how this worked for you when you got into SpaceX, you, you can't stop in the military, no fill mindset. The job continues until they PCS you to the next job. You go until the bell rings, not yeah. when you decide to leave. So then we get stuck in the military yeah, after the military. Cause it's up to you now to be like, I'm done. <laughs> I don't want to do this anymore. And so what was that like for you leaving SpaceX? Yeah, I actually in my first so my first boss ever as a civilian was another Air Force vet. So it turned out to be great. We're still really good friends. He's just an awesome guy, awesome mentor. But he left SpaceX a couple months before I did. And I remember like he he pulled me and like another guy that was on the team, like we both reported to him and told us, Hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna be leaving the company. And I was, I had been feeling all this stuff. Of like, I don't know, like your point, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to get out of this. How, when's this going to get better? And he's like, yeah, I put in my two weeks. I'm going to go move and change things up and I'm going to get a different job. And I was like, oh, if I don't like what I'm doing, I'm just allowed to do something different. Like I can go find, that was a really, like in hindsight, just a pivotal moment where you're like, I get to choose. Like I could technically do that at any time. So that was a big moment. I probably leaned too much into that freedom because I left my first civilian job. I left SpaceX without another job lined up. Didn't realize that was pretty risky, but I think it also speaks to like where I just was mentally and just like I needed to take a break. But yeah, and then I think the other thing that has helped through that was I've always been really clear on what skills I, I joke, the Liam Neeson, very particular set of skills. I was always really clear at what I was good at and what I wanted to do. And I, I think you see a lot of that with veterans that are transitioning where they're like, cause the military does teach you to be a little bit of a jack of all trades. I, for whatever reason, never thought of myself that way. I always viewed it like I'm good at like production and operations planning. Like that's what I can do. All, when I say like my resume was really good, it's because it was really dialed into that. So I think that focus helped me rebound and find my next job really well um, with that newfound freedom of I can change things up if it doesn't suit me. And when you're talking to veterans now, 
what advice do you give from your experience on how to dial in that set of particular set of skills? Cause yeah. I think that I'm still a like, I still don't really know what I'm good at yet. That's my, to be quite honest with you, I still, I'm like, I like talking to people. I'm pretty slick on a mic when I choose to be sometimes, but not really. And that's about it. And so I've, I'm either haven't dove deep enough yet to figure that out, but what advice do you give to people to figure it out? Yeah. So I, especially if veterans have the time, right? Most, a lot of the folks that I'm working with, they're so into the transition that they're, I'm talking to people two years out. They're like, Hey, I want resume advice. I'm like, bro, you don't need resume advice two years before your, your EOS. If you've got time, and there's, there's not that immediate financial pressure or other life circumstances, you've got to unpack yourself first. You said something really telling me, I don't know what I'm good at. I think it's a lot less at what you're good at or what you can do. It's more about what do you want to do? Because most jobs right now, if you want to be a pilot and you're not a pilot, you're not certified, or you want to be a surgeon and you never went to medical school, we have a problem. But for a lot of corporate jobs. You want to be in business. You want to be in operations. You want to be in sales. Even you want to get into cyber. There is a path where you can get through the certifications and the education and get into it. We think too much. I see one of two things, either self-exclusion, like I can't do these jobs because this is what I did in the military, or I can do everything and I get overwhelmed by all of it. And then you're applying for every different job. So if you can do the work to identify who you really are, and it sounds a little bit like woo and new age and like burning sage, but if you understand who you are and what your values are and what you enjoy, then you can start getting a little more clear about your job search. And one of the other things I recommend to people getting out is have your don't want to do list. Here are the things like, like I, unless it is between my family and starving, like I will not work night shift again. Like I can't do it. I did too many years. Like I'll never do that again. The more you can identify those kinds of things, the better you can then identify what you want. That makes a lot of sense. And something in there that you just said that I want to dive into is the self-disqualification. When you're, and I want to get, dive into the broader scale of you coaching people now. I think that's a really interesting uh, angle to take. But when you are talking to people within your personal experience, how do you deal with the imposter syndrome of I don't fit here or I'm not capable of doing X, like those thoughts. Oh, man. It's funny. I literally posted, I don't know when this will end up airing, but like two days ago, I actually uh -huh. posted something about imposter syndrome on LinkedIn. And it was like military transition day, 3000, whatever. Imposter syndrome still a thing. I'm beginning to think it's part of being a human being. <laughs> and I good. think that, again, I had this moment of realization where, you know, I was, I got out of the military and I wanted to be, I didn't know exactly how to describe it, but I wanted to be like a, an executive or a leader within business, right? I wanted to be one of the movers and shakers and all that. Number one, as you get back there, you realize that it's not as uh, glamorous as you thought it would be. I love what I do, but it's different than you think it is from the outside looking in. But I remember I first became a, a director and it was like, I made it, right? I got the, the title and I'm, I'm everything I wanted to be. And I was so excited. And then as you start working with other people, you realize that like everybody's still human. Like they're not like I work with some incredibly brilliant people. All humans are prone to 
mistakes and biases and gaps in their logic and like people are human. Um, that was really empowering. And I wish I could go back in time and show Joel 10 years ago, Hey, you're still a human with this title that you think is more important or fancier, right? So that's as far as I can tell, imposter syndrome just exists for everybody. And the quicker you can just acknowledge it again as a part of your human experience, right? Just like anger, just like fear, just like envy, all of these things are just, they are, you don't have to attach meaning to it. You can just notice like, oh, I'm going on a podcast. Do I really belong on a podcast? You can just say like, oh, that's how you feel. I don't need to address that right now. Like that can just sit there. That's just a thing. It's funny how imposter syndrome affects people in different ways. Like I, I got over the whole like fear of public speaking thing a long time ago when I was in the military, cause I was a teacher and eventually you're just like, this is going to sound way more narcissistic than I want it to be, but it's, I basically convince myself that whatever comes out of my mouth, people need to hear it. <laughs> like, yeah. And it's just, that's where it's at this point. And so when people are like, I don't know if I should speak public. I'm like, why not? You might have a really interesting take that no one's ever said before, but for a lot of people that's tough. And yeah, I don't know. Two other things on that confidence and posture syndrome thing. Number one, find people that'll cheer for you or root for you. Again, I said I made a couple good decisions, one of which was marrying my wife. That was something like multiple times. I remember looking at jobs online and I'm like, oh, this would be great, but I don't know if I could do it. And I think that even happened like with this job where I came into Optum. I was like, God, I've never, I don't have this and I've never done that. And like, I don't know if I have enough time in this. And she was like, are you kidding me? She's like, do you understand how good you are? And like that, sometimes that's just like your husband or your wife or whoever, like that person, like pumping you up, but like just somebody to be like, dude, push the button, go for it. Oh yeah. Okay. And then the other thing, there's a ton of physiological stuff that you can learn when it comes to public speaking, dealing with, with emotions, whatever it is. Your brain produces, it only has a couple chemicals, right? Whether you're doing a public speaking engagement or you are about to get in a car accident or you're in like war, your brain has the same option of chemicals to produce. So a lot of times, like it's more just learning how to handle those responses. So there's plenty of cool stuff out there about doing the Superman pose before you go into an interview. And I've done all that and I really love it. My favorite one is to listen to stand up comedy before every interview. 100% of the time, I listen to stand up comedy before I do interviews. So you go in loose and conversational. Who do you listen to? Oh, man. I listened to Joe Rogan has like a, I think it's like a 2014 one. And I, one, I always is worry. Is that the one where he talks about Brock Lesnar? Is that one? It wasn't. Is... I don't know if it was that one. The The one that I always like was like the tiger getting out of the box in the zoo like that. I don't yeah, know why, yeah, but yeah. that's just like my go-to. There's like that one and one about Bigfoot. The Bigfoot one's hilarious. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. He's got some good old stuff. I Yep. Him and I love him, Shane Gillis and Dave Chappelle. Those are my those are my big three that yeah. I love going to. I like, and Louis C.K. I love honestly. Mitch, I'm a really big stand up fan. <laughs> I love Mitch Hedberg too. His old stuff, oh, but that's Mitch not like funny. the that's not the tone or the pace you're looking for mm -hmm. an interview, right? Joe's hype. Joe's calm. He's like energetic as shit. <laughs> so that's I what I'm saying. So you want to be bringing in that, like, hey, like I'm excited to be here. You're excited to be here. Let's interview. We're like that's what you want to be yeah. showing up with. Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. That's cool. I like that you started talking. I like that you're focusing on like the brain chemicals. That's some very like Andrew Huberman e things <laughs> to talk about. But it, it's very true. When you really boiled 
it down to its most simplest form. That is what it is. And something else that you said that I want to tie into that observation is we're all feeling the same stuff, but no one takes the time to go. I might be nervous to be on this podcast, which means you might be nervous to be on this podcast. So we're both nervous to be on it. It's like, oh, it's, I'm just, it's just me. I feel this way or I'm nervous or I'm like, especially in, I think in our veteran transition space, we, a lot of people get out and they're like, this is how I feel. And it's like, buddy, this is how we all feel. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like we're all, we've all been there in some way, shape or form. So it's okay. But I don't know. I don't know why we can't think in terms of like, the collective versus the singular. And that's why I think like the stuff like what you're doing with this podcast is just so powerful because it helps to level that playing field a little bit where you get exposure to more and more people and you realize, okay, this person with this title at this company, whatever it is that you thought was so different or unapproachable, oh, they went through a lot of the same stuff. It's, it, it is normal and there is a sense of community. And that's why that when I think when we say building like networking, Again, like LinkedIn sometimes makes that feel a little yucky and transactional. And don't get me wrong. There are times where it's like, hey, I'm a veteran. Here's what I'm looking for. Can you help me? And I, I will do what I can to help veterans. But at the end, like the more important thing is, like, are you just building, finding a sense of belonging and finding a sense of something? Again, one of the big things that we identified with was like big Air Force or big Army or the Marine Corps just had their birthday and they won't shut up about it. Like they really like you're into what you're into that community still exists. That's called all of the veterans in the United States. It's like a bigger brotherhood than you had while you were in. You just have to go find it. Yeah. And I do want to get into you coaching veterans. You just keep teeing up these questions <laughs> for me really well. How do you recommend to people to, and how did you find community once you got out of the military? Because like you talk about that brotherhood, you just have to go find it. I think that making friends as an adult in and of itself is difficult but I think that as a military person that's used to showing us, welcome to Lake and Heath. Here's all of your friends. You work with them now. <laughs> like that's the, that's literally how it is. And yeah. your work friends, it really blew my mind when I made the realization that, especially because I work remotely, like my, the people I work with are not going to be my buds. Like I'm not yeah. going to, they're not, I'm not going to be tight with them and that's okay. I got to go find people to hang out with elsewhere. And that was huge. That was weird for me. So how was it for you? And what can people do to foster community within their yeah. life once they get out of the service? I think that's what brought me more involved with LinkedIn in general was like, I was at that stage where, and part of this is like the stage I'm at with my life, right? I've got young kids. So that's basically what we do, right? Like, you're lucky to squeeze in a couple of date nights, like much less, Hey, I'm going out with the boys for, I don't golf, but like going out to golf for the entire day, like you have fun with the kids. That's never been my jam. But I did hit that point of realization where it was like, man, I don't, something's missing. Right? So I get this director title and I feel like I made it and I'm, I've got my MBA and I'm, I'm so fancy. And you're doing this job that you thought you wanted and you worked for 10 years and you're like, oh shit, I'm not happy. What the hell? Uh, and I, again, having the perspective and unpacking and like, okay, I don't feel like work can't be your whole thing. It can't be the most important stuff. So as I unpack values and like service is really important to me, I feel like 
I feel at my best when I feel like I'm helping people and when I feel like I'm giving back. So that's where, as, as I made a couple posts on LinkedIn and a couple of them got like some attention and it seemed like a lot of vets connect, like I had other veterans reaching out. They're like, oh my God, thank you for saying that. I've been feeling that, but nobody said it. I was like, okay, like we're onto something. I guess we're going to, we're going to work with this. And then I would just say, it's okay to realize that not everybody's going to be your friend and not everybody's going to like your personality. That's totally okay. There's whatever, 7 billion people on the planet, you only need like a handful of people to like you to be completely happy and fulfilled. Yeah, they, I can't remember the, I can't remember the statistic, but it's like, how many close friends can you actually have? Like how many close relationships can you actually have versus how many acquaintances can you have? There's, they've done some research to basically figure out, put a number to the amount of relationships you can actively maintain in your brain. Yeah. It's not it's, a lot. Like, it's a, it's not... 100 and it's 150. And that's why cults start to fall apart as they get bigger, because you can't feel that loyal beyond 150 people. Oh, that makes sense. That's an interesting fact you just whipped out there. Were you yeah, in a cult you... at one point? <laughs> <laughs> no, I've, I've been kicking around now. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I, again, like follow when you, me on LinkedIn. <laughs> yeah. I've got I've, I'm over 150 connections. So it's definitely not a cult. That's fair. Yeah, it's something it's a movement now. <laughs> Yeah. Oh God. <laughs> yeah. But it's true. Like the, you don't need to be liked by everybody. And, um, yeah, I don't know. The flip side to that though, is understanding how you sound coming out of the military versus everybody else. I think that is a unique problem that is encountered by all, but only fixed by some, if that makes sense. Yeah. And context matters an awful lot, right? Like you're my first civilian company was SpaceX, which was really similar to the number one. I worked with a ton of vets. So that was there. It was everybody was growing out their DD-214 beard and had tattoos and the whole game. And then my next job was at Target, which I, again, made a couple good decisions target from a cultural development standpoint like i can't say enough good things about the leadership development that, that company uses really had some amazing leaders that sat me down and were like here's how you're showing up here's how you sound to people and we're like willing and had the courage to have those tough conversations to help to help share it within reason appropriate and like how much military you carry around with you varies from company to company i would imagine if you worked at lockheed or something like that where it's a lot of vets it maybe skews a little more in that like military sense of humor vets are not hugely represented not in a bad way but they're just not like 50 percent of the workforce at my current company so i've had to learn to not make some of the jokes that not throwing maybe I would have humor made. at them. Oh, you're definitely not using the launch truck jokes at work. That's for sure. <laughs> oh man, it's so true. The whenever I am in like a Slack channel with just vets, it's a very different. It's a very different mode of convert, like modus operandus than the than if I'm talking on Slack to not vets for sure. But it's also something that I think everyone should be aware of. Hey, listen, and this doesn't just go with like jokes. It's like how you write your resume, how you talk about yourself, how you just operate at all. It's like most people you interact with in the world have no idea what the military is. We're such a small 
group of people in reality, even though you feel like it's your entire world. So like, why wouldn't everybody know about the military? But it's yeah. It's like people don't understand. Like you, you're like, hi, I'm Joy. We're used to work in the Air Force. They're like, oh, cool. What plane did you fly? And you're like, I literally had that meeting with somebody today. I was like doing a meet and greet and introducing. They were like, oh, so were you a pilot? It's like, no, but that's it's cool that you think that I'm cool like yeah. that. <laughs> you're like, yes, I flew F-16s. I was in yeah. Top Gun. The but yeah, I just think that building that self awareness and that empathy is is incredibly important. And so for you, now we're going to dive into the coaching thing. When did you start helping other veterans? Like when did that start in your journey and what has that been like for you? Yeah, it just happened by accident, right? I've helped a few folks here and there, like a family friend or whoever. It's like, hey, Joel used to be in the Air Force and you look at so-and-so's resume. But then when I got to Optum or United Health Group, I connected with a guy named Kevin Traw, who's an, a former maintenance commander. So he's just an awesome guy, tremendous mentor, and one of the forces behind like our veteran ecosystem at UHG. Got connected with him. We worked close to each other. We were like a, a linked department. So we had some business case to work together. And then he was just a mentor and helped me onboard. And then was like, hey, here's the stuff that I'm doing to bring on, like Skillbridge was our big focus at the time. Here's what we're working on to try to bring on more Skillbridge candidates. And I'm working with our military hiring team and here's how we're doing it. So I got involved with him. And then he would be posting like publicity stuff on LinkedIn. Like, hey, we've hired a new Skillbridge fellow and that kind of stuff. And then connected with Candy Tillman and 50 Strong, who's one of our military hiring partners at UHG. And that kind of, if anybody's connected with Candy on LinkedIn, you understand like that just opened up the entire floodgate for like military LinkedIn. And from there, it was just slowly, I think I made this post of why does everybody want to be a project manager? And it went completely crazy relative to what I had ever seen on LinkedIn. And it, that was the first time I was like, oh, people, some people are like, want to hear what I'm saying or this makes sense to them. So I just started like playing around with it. And from there, started doing just coaching calls like through Veterati is one of the big platforms. And then just as people are reaching out, started feeling that that sense of service where it's like, oh, this really does feel like it's making an impact and really helping people. So I've just been trying to find ways to continue to lean into it. That's awesome. And what would you say you've learned the most from that entire process? Oh, man a ton. I think probably the biggest piece though is like teaching really is the best way to learn something. So even if I thought my resume was good, I didn't understand what necessarily was good about it until I had to explain it to somebody else or until I was like highlighting an error with somebody else's and saying, no, no, look what I did with, look what I did here. It helps you to really clarify and crystallize your ability to explain things. So if you can find any way to teach something, even if it's not a skill that you necessarily need to develop, like the act of teaching and training can be incredibly helpful. And like I said, working on those thought patterns. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And it definitely, if you have to go sell your ideas to people, for lack of a better term, you get really good at that's when it starts clicking for you because you go, oh, yeah, let me tell you about this. And then in your head, once you say it enough times, you're like, yep, that's a thing. And then it like just ingrains itself in your thought process, which I think is awesome. 
Now, tying into your coaching and also going back to your original transition, if you could go back when you're talking to people now, if you could talk to yourself, what would you have told yourself to do differently in your transition around the identity piece? I think the biggest examples I share is understand your act, your personality and understand your values. And at first, everybody wants to think that like their values are whatever the military value, like courage and leadership, like, like leadership is actually not a value for me. It's something I do in my day job and it's something I, it's a skill I need to use, but it's not the most important thing to me. Like having the courage to go through and do that. So there's a couple of different, there's one called like the VIA character Institute that has a bunch of different characters. Travis Mannion foundation uses that same kind of template as of a value exercise. You could always do Myers Briggs, right? Which is like the 16 personalities investing in that work and really getting curious about like, how am I wired is so powerful. And I really wish I would have gone through with more of that 10 years ago. And then the other thing is like, take your damn terminal leave, take your terminal leave, take the R and R, take a breather, recover. You've earned it. It's okay. Like you deserve to rest. I think that, that both things are great advice. The doing the personality tests, I think are really important. I had a, I had another guest on Chris Roberts, who is a leadership consultant now who used to do cyber work. And he's a huge advocate of familiarizing yourself with one of the Myers Briggs or the I think it's I think he said Engram the Engram like version mm-hmm. whatever because not only will that allow you to understand what you are but it gives you a system to fit other people around you into yeah. the same box and, and that's a powerful tool as you get out to understand like to understand people in a system when in the military, everyone kind of was the same. Like we weren't, but we were. And so I think that's an extension of the benefits of familiarizing yourself with one of those systems for sure. Yeah. And it's so people want to do that. They want to understand who you are and they would love if you just give them the cheat code and they want to give you the cheat code. It's funny. I I had a, I had a new team that I just added onto in work. And so I had to do like my about me slide, right? It's my first call with this new team. And I'm like, Hey, I'm the new leader. And I put, I put pictures of me and my family and all this stuff. And then I put personality type INTJ. And then a week later, the team is doing their about me introductions. And a bunch of them had different, it was like different personality, different personality methodologies or whatever you want to call it. But they were so eager to be like, Oh, like, here's who I am. It's comforting that you can be like, Oh, here's like a little trading card of Joel as a person. And now, you know, a little bit of the rules on how to navigate who I am. Yeah, it's powerful. And I think that uh, what is INTJ? What's that? What's that one? What that uh, one, what's that one called? Introverted, intu- intuition, thinking, judging. That's Myers-Briggs. Yeah. Yeah. I can't remember what mine is. I think it's like, uh, it's like ENJ something. Yeah, know. it's the, the egotistical part of me is, oh, that was because they list they're like, here's common people. Mm-hmm. And it's like Sherlock Holmes, I think was an INTJ yeah. as like a fictional person. Where you're like, oh, Sherlock Holmes is actually a dick. So watch out for that. Like, <laughs> know that there's a counterbalance to that. Yep. I am an ENFJ. That's what it is. Oh, nice. So, yeah. The, the one that's super out there with their feelings and such. 
yeah anyway that's awesome i yeah i think that i think that I like the idea of using that as like your intro card. That's cool. I've never thought about doing that. I think I'm going to start doing that when I meet new people in the, in like work. Just be like, hey, here you go. Have fun with that. The last thing that I want to ask you is you've given everyone a lot of advice. What is the penultimate thing that you want to leave the listeners with before we end this episode? Oh man. And take as long um, as you want. Cause I can literally edit all of this time away. <laughs> or you just leave 45 seconds of downtime as I think it's maybe I'm clever. lying. I don't know. Yeah. It's funny. Uh, I no, I think it's you matter and you're valid, like your feelings, your experiences, your thoughts, like they're all valid. They're all real. You can live it. You can feel it all feel entitled to it. I think so much of what veterans do, and this is far beyond, it's not any particular demographic. It's not combat vets or this or that. So much of what we do is just fighting against our own concept of who we should be or what we mm -hmm. think we should feel or, or experience. Like, feel it all. Like it's all normal. Again, it's, your brain is going to make chemicals and you're just going to have to learn how to process it. Like feel it. That's awesome. Yeah. I think that's such important advice for people who for so long feelings really bad or it gets in the way. Yeah. It will really get in the way now if you don't deal with it. So deal with, yeah. so deal with it, I think is the real lesson there. But Joel, man, it was so great to get to have you come on to listen to your story. First time I've heard it and it's, it's powerful and it's really cool. And I'm really grateful that you took the time to come on to give everybody an hour and 15 minutes of your life to give advice and uh, your story. So thank you so much for coming on. Awesome. I really appreciate the opportunity. I'm grateful to help as many people as I can. So hopefully this is a uh, matter to at least one person. So appreciate I hope it. So. And if people want to find you, where can they do pretty much on LinkedIn? I don't have like, a website. I don't have a book to sell. I don't really have other social media. So like LinkedIn is where I reach out to vets. That's where I spend okay. the time. Are you still on Veterati? Yeah. And I'm, I'm on Veterati as well. I've got a profile. I will admit that my calendar is a little bit of a dumpster fire on there right now. Might be tough to squeeze in time, but LinkedIn Great. and Veterati for sure. Cool. Awesome. We'll make sure that those are linked down in the description of the episode. So if you're interested, make sure to go check Joel out and reach out to him. He'd love to talk to you if he has time. But that's the end of the episode. Thank you all so much for being here, for taking the time to listen to the whole thing. You're the reason why we do this. If you like the content, subscribe. Always nice. But more importantly, share this with folks who would benefit from this message. That's it. And we will catch you on the next episode of the Post-Military Podcast. Peace.